Well, can you imagine looking into the face of our Savior? That could be today, huh? That could be today. So thank you, worship team, for, for leading us so well today. And I just want to add to what's already been said about thanking folks for serving in our Biblical Counseling Training Conference. And in addition to what's already been said, I would encourage you to be praying for um, the guests who came this week. And now they're back in their churches and just trying, the specific prayer request would be that God would give them wisdom as they just try to think through, okay, how do I implement what it is that I heard in my particular ministry context? And, and that requires the wisdom of Solomon. It, it really does. Um, what should be improved? What should be changed? What should be implemented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Many times it's better to, to walk before you run. And that's not always easy when you get excited about something. And um, so it just, if you would think to, to pray for the men and women who were with us this past week, that God would help them as they now look to lead and teach and apply what it is that we discussed in the conference, that would um, that'd be a good uh, prayer request for sure. I'd also encourage you to pray for um, especially our international guests. I mean, it's amazing how many different countries were represented. And we had... You know, there's always the conference, and then there's all of the meetings and, and meals around the conference, especially with people from other countries. And a lot of that has to do with just exploring ways that we might be able to partner together and ways we might be able to, to serve them in the days ahead. And so what we generally do, we, we, we try not to make decisions during the week. That's not probably the best way to make decisions. So we ask them to put whatever their strategy, whatever their requests are in writing, and then send that back to us when we try to make more global decisions about the future. And so that will require the wisdom, too, to determine um, how our church should serve around the world in the days ahead. And, you know, when you think about this uh, Free to Dream, that's the name of our strategic ministry plan right now, that's the name of our capital campaign, what's behind that phrase is, Lord willing, um, in a year, year and a half from now, our, our church will not have any more um, indebtedness. And um, that frees up a lot, potentially, uh, of funds that had been used to, to pay off all these buildings um, to be able to use for more ministry. And a lot of that has to do with missions. And so this is the time to be thinking and praying and strategizing about how, as a church family, we might be more effective around the world. That's pretty exciting to think about that, isn't it? That to be free to dream, and some of you are old enough, you paid off your house, and you remember what that was like. That's kind of where we are. That's what we're talking about. And so just ask the Lord for wisdom. And, you know, just as one example, we had the privilege on Friday to have lunch with three pastors from the Ukraine. And I just think about what their life is like right now. It was very humbling to, to listen to them and to hear more about their story. They were telling us that some of them were at the conference three years ago, and they were on their way back, and one of them said, I had paid for the Internet service so I could just be doing some work. That's when they learned that the war had broken out. And they had been assured that, yes, the, um, the Russian army had um, been amassed. You remember how it was working. They, they were amassed by the border, but they were assured that that's not actually going to happen. Well, it certainly did happen. And what they've experienced in the last three years, the, the amount of loss is just completely astounding. And, and what they experience every day as they go to bed and hearing these rockets and these missiles and, 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 and literally wondering, is the next one going to hit my house? That's what they're facing. The number of funerals they've had to do, 
um, the, the number of friends that have died. It just, it's, it's so heartbreaking. And one of the things that we're talking about is the possibility of doing a, a, some sort of a retreat with what they would really like is just for their leaders, the, the, the key leaders in their church, um, just to have a time of rest and refreshment. Is there a way to get them into a safe place, maybe in more of a mountain-type setting where it's not quite as dangerous, maybe to have some sort of a um, series of teachings on just spiritual rest and handling suffering and that kind of thing, and then literally just a way for them to, to decompress and um, so it, we don't know. We're just strategizing with them right now about all of that and what that might look like. But isn't it great to, to have friends around the world? And don't you love the fact that we have a God who loves the nations and, and who gives us the privilege as a local church, you know, here in West Lafayette, Indiana, that, that, to possibly be a, a, a blessing um, to, to somebody else around the world. So um, pray in these coming days and weeks for... Um, just that the Lord would continue to work in all of the friends that we've had the privilege of making. Hey, if I asked you to, to list uh, the most admirable characters in the Old Testament, who would you name? There's a lot of candidates for sure, but I don't think it would be long for many of us until we mention a man named Boaz, whose story is told in the wonderful little book of Ruth. That's when we learn about the important biblical theme of somebody being a kinsman redeemer. Please think about that phrase, kinsman redeemer. You may remember that the story unfolds in the days that the judges governed. And that period of time is sadly summarized like this in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, it was in that setting that a woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons leave Bethlehem in the land of Judah to, to sojourn in the land of Moab because of a severe famine. And while they were there, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. Then her two sons marry Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other one named Ruth. And then the, the two sons pass away and neither of the wives had conceived children. So we have three widows now, and they, they hear that the famine has subsided back in Bethlehem, and they decide to go back to where the mother-in-law is from, where, where Naomi is from. But, but at some point in that journey, Naomi sits down with her daughters-in-law, and she says, you ought to go back to Moab. You ought to go back to be with your people and, and to be with your gods. One of the key verses of that first chapter is, May the Lord grant that you would find rest each in the house of her husband. And what's curious and maybe even scandalous about that is that Naomi admits that by them doing so, they would be returning to their own gods, which apparently doesn't matter much to Naomi because after one of the daughters-in-law takes her up on her offer, Naomi tries to persuade Ruth to do the exact same thing. And listen to this verse. Then Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You ought to do the same thing. Return after your sister-in-law. In other words, your hope is in finding a man regardless of what he believes, regardless of who his God is. And about now, any old man will do. And what that tells us is she was functioning as an individual like Israel was functioning as a nation. That's the clear point of all of that, I think, that everybody is just doing that which is right in their own eyes. 
Well, did Ruth take Naomi up on that offer? No, no, which is amazing, right? You would have assumed Naomi, the Jewish woman, would have been the, the more mature person spiritually, not this, this young Moabitess. But, but here's what Ruth said. She said, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people and, and your God, my God. By the way, if you're single and you're thinking about using that passage in your wedding, that always makes me a little bit nervous. I have to say to young couples, you realize the, the, the groom died. I mean, I, I'm not sure that's, that's the great, but what? no judging here. But, but, but the point is, Ruth believed, didn't she? She believed Jehovah. Uh, the God of Israel is capable of being faithful to me, and so I choose to be faithful to him. Well, it, regrettably, Naomi chose the path of, of bitterness. And so they get back to Bethlehem. So Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, where Naomi had been from. A and the women of the city say, hey, 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 aren't you? Aren't, you're Naomi, aren't you? You remember what she said? Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, while the Hebrew word for bitter. If we're going to pick one word that, that defines my identity, just call me Mara. Why? For the Almighty, God has dealt very, here it is, bitterly with me. I went out full. That's interesting because it was a time of what? Famine. But the Lord has brought me back empty, which probably could have been a little bit offensive to Ruth, and think about what's going to happen in the rest of the book. And why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed that he can't be trusted, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So, so many, so many lessons right there. Well, in the very next chapter, you remember, because we have to get to the kinsman redeemer part. So Ruth asked permission, since it was time of the barley harvest, to go glean in the fields in accordance with the provisions in the Old Testament for people who were poor. And she, she just so happens, that is literally what the text says, that the, the writer is trying to kind of tease us a little bit. She, she just so happens to come to the fields of a man named Boaz. Here's the guy we're driving to, who was actually a relative of her deceased father-in-law and therefore his sons, including Ruth's husband. Now, I realize in our culture, we might say, okay, so the relative now, well, well, that's convenient. Maybe he'll show Ruth preferential treatment and give her a job or something. No, no. In their culture, and remember, when we interpret the Bible, we always interpret the Bible first in light of the culture in which it is given. The fact that Boaz was a near relative would set off all sorts of alarm bells, in this case, in very, very positive ways. Why? Well, because the Old Testament had a specific provision for people in Naomi and Ruth's position, in at least two senses, for, for, for widows who were poor. One was the law of the Goel, or the kinsman redeemer. And we read about that in Leviticus 25, 25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and, and buy back. There's, there's our word. Redeemer to, to, to buy back what his relative has sold. If you want to read more about that, the subsequent verses discuss it more fully, or you could even go to Deuteronomy 27, which talks to you more about the law of the Goel or the, the kinsman redeemer. But, but secondly, was the issue of leveret marriage. 
Now, now if you've never heard about this before, you might want to sit back. Because what is the, the second provision for a woman in this situation? In Deuteronomy 25 When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go in to take her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and said, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him, and and picture this, in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed and who got a good spitting in his face. I mean, that's what that is. And I realize you might hear those verses and say, yuck, yuck which is probably not the best response to God's provision in Scripture for His people. So so you might want to reel the yuck back in, all right, if you got one of those going on. But but I I do realize it's hard for us in, in this culture to understand what a difficult position Naomi and Ruth would have been in. Most of us have not experienced a famine. Is that right? Although I, I, I had a near one this morning, if you want just a sad story. My, my Sunday morning routine anymore is to, to I stop over at the, at the Dunkin' Donuts, you know. I, I believe in supporting local business. And, and so I stop over at the Dunkin' Donuts this morning. I tell you the truth, on the, on the drive-through sign, or on the drive-through device, there was a sign. You know what it said? No donuts today. Like, no, no, like, no. What is this place called? Right? So I asked the guy when I got up to the window, hey, what happened? He said the delivery driver didn't show up. It's like he had one job, right? You go get the donuts. If we don't have donuts, our name doesn't mean anything. So I kind of had a mini famine going on. We'll see if I can... We'll see if I can stand erect here and deliver the, the sermon. But, but, but we haven't experienced that. Or, or worse... The possibility that our land would be sold and our family's name and potential for livelihood might be extinguished. So what I'm saying is these two women are in dire, dire straits. But if you know that book, as the mother-in-law Naomi watches God bless them through Boaz's character and kindness, what happens in chapter 2? Her bitterness starts melting. Her, her view of God starts changing. These women are swimming in barley. But by the time you get through chapter 2, it's amazing the way God is blessing them. And by the way, that's one of the, the, the lessons of the book of, of Ruth. You, you don't have to stay bitter forever. There, there's a lot of hope in this book, so much so that, that by the time you get to chapter 3, Naomi, the one who had said she is bitter, she isn't bitter anymore. You say, how do you know that? Well, because she launches an outrageous plan. Because somebody has to make the next move. And Boaz probably is not going to be the one since he's so much older than Ruth. So you remember what happens? Naomi encourages Ruth to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz will undoubtedly be sleeping at night and ask him to function as their kinsman redeemer. 
And what happens next is amazing. Because apparently Boaz has been thinking about this as well because he tells her, remember, this is in the middle of the night. Boaz tells Ruth that, yeah, it, it is true, but there's actually a closer relative. And when you hear that part of the story, you say, no, 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 I, I don't want to hear about that guy. Wait, 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 no, you're the guy. But that demonstrates his impeccable character, doesn't it? It also shows how far we've come in the story. Because we've gone from, in chapter 1 with Naomi, any old God will do. And now we're to the place where with Boaz, we have to be sure we're following God's word carefully and precisely. But that part of the story was, that's put to rest pretty quickly, wasn't it? Boaz goes, I mean, how, how many days does he wait? None. The very next day, he goes to the city gate, he assembles the elders, and, and guess who just happens to be walking by? This closer relative, and, and here's what this guy says. He says, well, I, I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. You louse, or I redeem it for yourself, he says to Boaz. You may have my right of redemption. I can't redeem it. I mean, what word would you use to describe that guy? Can't even say it in the church house, right? But then, and, and here's where we're going. These heroic words. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses today that I bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malion. Moreover, I required Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malion, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. And you're left cheering. You're left screaming. This is as good as Purdue whooping up on IU last week. I mean, we're talking about that kind of cheering for where this story is going. And you think this. Could there ever be a better redeemer than this? Could there ever be a, a kinder redeemer than this? Could there ever be a more gracious redeemer than this? And what's the answer to all those questions? Well, yes, yes, there could. He's the one to whom this entire story is pointing. Who's that? Yeah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for people like you and me, who in a spiritual sense were far more hungry, do you believe this? And far more impoverished and far more enslaved than Ruth and Naomi were. What, what we potentially have in the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the perfect kinsman redeemer. With that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bible now to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. That's on page 150 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you if you need that this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1 or page 150 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. Our church's theme this year is building on our heritage. We are right on top in the month of February. We're right on top of our church's 60th anniversary. And you know, God in His grace has given us a wonderful heritage, hasn't He? And so the question that we're considering this year is, well, what does it look like to, to build on that? that? That's it. What does it look like to, to build on our heritage wisely and well? In these early months, in 2024, we're just focusing in on Ephesians chapter 1, where we want to remember our identity as one in Christ. And I'd like to read the, the four, first 14 verses of this chapter. 
But please look especially for what it says about this matter of redemption. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we we have redemption. There it is. And notice also that just what I read before, the end of verse 6, in the beloved, that's going to come up later. In him we have, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the, the praise of his glory. In him, and you see that little phrase over and over in this passage, in him. You also, after after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now look for redemption again. Who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the the praise of his glory. What, What a marvelous passage. And this morning we're talking about how you're redeemed And with the time we have remaining, let's think about four responses to Jesus being your kinsman redeemer. Well, first of all, you have to acknowledge man's need of redemption. And just like I said earlier about the, the importance of interpreting the book of Ruth through the lens of the Old Testament, well, it's equally important when we're thinking about Paul's use of the word redemption in the New Testament. There's two primary Greek words translated redeem or or redemption in the New Testament. One of them is agorazo. It comes from agora. And the emphasis there is on something being bought because agora is the the marketplace. So, for example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a, a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The emphasis there is on the price that, that had to be paid to free us from the law. And I'll say more about that verse in, in just a little bit. Well, if that's all redemption was, that'd be marvelous. But, but, but there's a second word. It's a latruo which means to release from captivity, paying a ransom in order to release a person from bondage, especially that of slavery. And John MacArthur explains that in his commentary. He says, during New Testament times, the Roman Empire had as many as six million slaves. Imagine that. And the the buying and selling of them was a major business. If a person wanted to free a loved one or a friend who was a slave, and wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? If a person wanted to free a loved one or friend who was a slave, he would buy that slave for himself and then then grant him freedom, testifying to the deliverance by a written certificate. The true O was used to designate that, the freeing of a slave in that way. 
That's precisely the idea carried in the New Testament use of the term to represent Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. He paid the redemption price, friends. Think about that. He, he paid the redemption price to buy for himself fallen mankind and to, to set them free from their sin. Now, actually, I think that raises one of the more challenging issues in the day in which we live. Why? Only a person convinced of his or her enslavement would be motivated to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in order to secure this marvelous and miraculous redemption. So so you have to acknowledge my need of redemption. I, I was enslaved. That was Paul's point to the Romans and what many consider to be the the heart and the essence of the gospel in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. Do you believe that? There's an enslavement. There's a price that has to be paid. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through, here it is, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a, a satisfaction, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate my righteousness. Did I say that right? Okay, let me back up and try again. This was to demonstrate your righteousness. How am I doing? Not even close, right? Do you believe it? This was to demonstrate what? His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Wait, wait a minute. He can't just pass over them unless something else happens. For the demonstration, I say of, here it is again, his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just, how so? A price did have to be paid. He he would be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And, And friend, I think the question to each one of us on that point is rather simple and straightforward. Have you acknowledged and and do you acknowledge man's need of redemption? Hey, I'm happy to tell you that our forefathers clearly did. No doubt about that. It's remarkable to me that within two years of our church being launched in 1964 that they were constructing their first permanent facility. It was and it still stands over on South 18th Street. And then on January 8th of that following year, of 1967, they had already moved into the building But on January 8th, 1967, they had a formal dedication service. And it included what they called an act of dedication. Don't you like that, by the way? An act of dedication. And it was a responsive reading. So so the pastor read a statement, and then the church family who was assembled there, our forebearers, had to decide whether they would publicly affirm their dedication to those theological ideas So so here's how it went. Uh, To the purpose of maintaining worship in accordance with our belief in a verbally inspired and hence infallible Bible. And you realize 60 years ago there was a battle raging for the Bible. And there were all sorts of people who were saying that the Bible couldn't be trusted. Uh, The Bible wasn't inspired. The Bible wasn't inerrant. The Bible wasn't infallible. And there were certainly plenty of people over here on this side of the river that's what they thought. And now you got this little baby church. 
A little brand new baby church in, in the midst of that, that, that theological war that, that was raging between theological liberals and theological conservatives. And then you got that. Are, are we going to say it publicly? Are, are, are we going to say it publicly that, that what we're going to base this church on is the belief that this book before us is divine? It was written, inspired by God. And every one of them had to decide it. I, I, I wish we had a tape. Because what they said was, we, we dedicate this church. We, we dedicate this church. And then the pastor said this to the preaching of what? Of the gospel, which is the good news of the, the substitutionary death, burial. In other words, redemption was necessary. And imagine that. Again, just a small group of people, little baby church in the midst of a culture 60 years ago. And I'm not just talking about somebody in California. I'm talking about right here. I'm talking about people who did not want to talk about the sinfulness of man, did not want to talk about the, uh, an inability of human beings to save ourselves. They didn't want to talk about the fact that we needed a, a Savior we needed a, a redemption. We needed a substitutionary death. And yet that small group of people, our forebears, our forebears, to the preaching of the gospel, which is the good news of the, the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that group of people had to do, what are you going to say about that? And what they say? They said, we dedicate this church. Aren't you glad for those men and women? Aren't you glad for that kind of courage? Aren't you glad for people who are willing to take a stand? God bless them. God bless them. Then they said this to the proclamation of the same gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're not just interested in having an impact right here in our little subdivision. We're interested in having an impact around the world. What, what outrageous idea was that? You little group of people, you really think you're going to have an impact on somebody in, in another part of the world? And what did they say? What did they say? We dedicate this church. And did you hear what I said a moment ago? How many meetings did we have just last week with people from where? From around this world because of our theological forebearers. They were not ashamed of the gospel. So it wasn't a, a bunch of slick advertising. It wasn't a lot of watered-down religious sentiments that had the ability to neither offend or convert anybody. They were very clear in their acknowledgement of man's need of redemption, along with the marvelous news that a kinsman redeemer has come. We just finished this 40th Biblical Counseling Training Conference. That's pretty amazing. That, that, that's pretty amazing. By the way, some of you have been participating in that conference, serving in it, teaching in it for a long time. I, I just feel duty-bound to tell you, some of you are getting old. But, but our, 40th, our 40th biblical counseling training conference, and one of our doctrinal distinctives is that mankind's greatest need is a separation from a holy God because of our sin. Now, that's not to suggest that every person's problem is the direct result of his or her individual sin. That's not to suggest that there's not the existence of innocent suffering in this world. But friends, none of us are passive victims. 
That's one of the big distinctions between biblical counseling and any other form of counseling. None of us are passive victims. We're active worshipers. And our response to both sinning and suffering should be to run to whom? To run to our Redeemer in repentance and faith. So many of the world's systems want to place responsibility somewhere else where counselors essentially become like the priests described in Hebrews 10, standing daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And the sad reality is that a fair amount of that is done under the heading of Christian and not now, sometimes even biblical counseling. And I just want to say, beware of any counseling system that fails to quickly and comprehensively acknowledge man's need of redemption. Because our enslavement was real and undeniable. Now, now secondly, acknowledge the need and then marvel at the extent of your redemption. If we're willing to repent, if we're willing to turn around to go from pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and, and we truly acknowledge that we needed redemption, a price had to be paid, well, well, what do we find as the proposed solution? And friend, I really want to encourage you to lock on to this idea. We're, we're talking about a personal relationship with a Redeemer who loves you. This may be one of the reasons the book of Ruth is in the Bible to help us personalize the transaction of biblical redemption. Can I ask you to just think about that for a moment? That may be why the book of Ruth is in the Bible, to help us personalize the transaction of biblical redemption. Some of you who are older, I realize those who are younger, you won't remember this, but some of you older folks, you'll remember the name J. Vernon McGee. Anybody here old enough to remember J. Vernon McGee? The rest of you later, Google it, okay? Google it because you want to hear his voice. That, that, that man, he was a great Bible teacher, and he had a, a very distinctive voice on the radio. J. Vernon McGee. Yeah. Some of you can, you can close your eyes and hear that voice, can't you? I mean, it was very, very... You know, he wrote a book on Ruth. He wrote a book on Ruth, and here's what he titled it. The Romance of Redemption. Think about that title. The Romance of Redemption. And here's how the book description reads. The, the, the story of Ruth, the Gentile maid from Moab, is a powerful and passionate portrayal of pure love, the devoted love of Ruth for her Hebrew mother-in-law, Naomi, the romantic love between Ruth and Boaz, and the, the redemptive love of God. Exactly. That's why I tried to point out at the end of verse 6, before we get into redemption, Paul reminds us that we're in the, the what? The beloved. Paul made a similar comment to the Romans, to, to all who are, are beloved of God in Rome. There's a romance to this. Called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not talking about an impersonal payment or transaction made by somebody who barely knows or cares about you. Friend, what Boaz was to Ruth, God is to you. What, what Boaz was to Ruth, God is to you. Personalize this transaction. When I became a Christian in my senior year of high school, my, my church, not long after that, encouraged me to consider becoming a pastor. 
And so I submitted myself to their leadership. They evaluated my character and my giftedness, and they did encourage me to, to, to um, pursue training in being a pastor. Well, the challenge was my, my dad was not a believer, and he was not in favor of that idea at all, at all. My, my dad was an accountant for U.S. Steel, and, and he, I was his only son. And so his plan for me was that I would go to Northwestern University Sorry for cursing. He, his plan for me was to go to Northwestern and um, to, to be an accountant and, frankly, to be rich. That, that was his point. And I realize some of you might be in accounting and you might say, well, that's not exactly the way it works. I'm just telling you that, that the way he saw it in my particular life. And um, when, when I came and, and, and talked to my dad, my dad was not a, a mean man. He, he was not an angry man, but be, he was clearly disappointed. And when I told him that I thought God wanted me to become a pastor, his words were, you'd be wasting your life. You'd be wasting your life if you became a pastor. And not long after that, after I had done some research, I came back to him and I said, you know, Dad, um, I don't think God wants me to go to Northwestern. I think he wants me to go to um, Baptist Bible College out in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And... Um, Again, he wasn't an angry man, he, and he was not, these words were not spoken out of meanness, but, but he said, only a fool would do that. Exact words, only a fool would do that. And if you do that, you're on your own. You're on your own. So, so at that time, I was working at a, at a health club, um, making um, barely minimum wage was what I was being paid. And, and as I was doing the calculations, there's just no way I was going to be able to, to pay tuition at, at Bible college. There's no way, even if I worked... I was 24-7 and saved it all. I, I wasn't going to have enough money for um, school that, that fall. And one day when I was at the health club, I, the, I got a phone call, and it was from a friend of mine. I, I barely knew this fellow, but he said that um, he worked for a pool company, and they needed somebody to work as a laborer building in-ground swimming pools. But the catch was I had to start the next day. I had to start the next day. And... Um, so I went to my boss at the health club, and I told him what was up, and he said, listen, that's too good to pass up. Why don't you go try it, and if it doesn't work out, we'll hold your spot so you can come back, which was incredibly gracious of him. So, so, so I went the very next day with, with uh, uh, the owner of this company. He was an elderly Jewish man, and something you can just still remember, I, I, we're riding in his big Cadillac out to the, the first job site, and he was just trying to find out my story and explain to him that, I had recently become a Christian, and I, I believe that God wanted me to become a pastor, and I was just wanting a job so I could save money for Bible college. And we had that conversation, and then I worked for him that week. And then on Saturday, at the end of my first week, I was with him again. And he said, listen, listen, um, I'll, I'll pay you $5 an hour. And, and back in those days, that was pretty good money. Um, that shows how old I am. I'll pay $5 an hour. And he said, you can work as many hours as you want. Now, that part really got into my head because now I'm doing it. Remember, my dad's an accountant. I, I'm doing the math as he's saying that. And then he said, if you work for me all summer uh, before you go back or before you go to school, I'll give you a $1,000 bonus to help pay for your Bible college education. Now, back then, I, I realized $1,000 now, if, if I said it was laying over there, you probably wouldn't even walk over there to get it. I mean, I realize it's not much now, but ba back then... Some of you are saying, where is it? <laughs> um, that, that was a, a, a lot of money. And, and, and the more I got to know that man, um, the more amazed I was But just how he chose to, to love me, just because he wanted to. 
And Fred, what, what I'm encouraging you to do right now is marvel at the extent of your redemption. It, what, what Boaz was to, to Ruth, God is to you. God is to you. Now, uh, of course, that's just the beginning of the story in many ways because we're talking about now a payment much more... Pre- we're not just talking about $1,000 here. We're, we're talking about a, precious, a payment much more precious than gold because what was the centerpiece in Ephesians 1, 7? We, we have redemption through His blood. You may have thought when I read that before of 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with what? With precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And aren't you glad that that's a central part of the heritage on which we have the privilege to build? As far as I know, for practically the last 60 years, every month, this church family, however big the church was, wherever we happened to be located at the time, wherever campuses we had, we, we paused and celebrated the Lord's table together. Why? Because there are few things more precious to us than the, the shed blood of Christ. We believe, as the writer of Hebrews did, that all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is, is no forgiveness. That's why this church has historically sung songs like this, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. By the way, to you. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed, here it is, by the blood of the Lamb. I needed a Savior. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, are you? And I know you may be going through some deep water right now, but my friend, if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you have a reason for great joy in your heart right here, right now. And that ought to put everything else in perspective. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of his presence with me doth continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. Do you? All the day long. I sing. I sing. You might say, that's why when I'm driving my car to school or when I'm driving my car to, to, to work every morning by myself, somebody pulls up next to me and they look at me, what in the world's going on with that person? Why do they look at you so funny? It's because you're belting one out, baby. That's why. Right? You're singing it to yourself in your car. And you might say, I know it. It doesn't sound very good. Well, who cares? You're in your car by yourself, and it sounds good to the only person listening. You know that? Jesus loves the sound of your voice. You believe that? Jesus loves the sound of your singing. I, I think of him all the day long. I sing for I, I can't be silent. His love is the, the theme of my song. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and, and giveth me songs in the night. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed his child, and forever I am. So, so acknowledge man's need and, and marvel at the extent and then rejoice in the effects of your redemption. You know, this title that we selected for these first several weeks together from chapter 1, remembering our identity as one in Christ, 
That's a very important way of thinking about this book, how the first three chapters are all about the gospel indicatives, who we are in Christ, and then and only then, the last three chapters about the gospel imperatives, what we're supposed to do as a result of that. And that sequence is very important. And the verse that we're studying this morning is one of the reasons we chose that title. It's the, the in him we have redemption. That little phrase is so incredibly powerful. And by the way, I, I should pause somewhere along, along the line here and just ask, have you been redeemed? Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Has there been a definite time in your life where you admit, I can't save myself? And God's way too holy for that. I can't save myself. I, I, I need somebody to, to pay for my sin. I need somebody to take charge of my life. And if you have never made that decision before, you want some incredible news, God stands ready to redeem you right now. I'm talking about before they get more donuts over at the donut house. I'm saying right now, before the delivery guy gets over his hangover and gets those donuts over to poor Dunkin' Donuts, you could be redeemed. And there's no uh, magic formula, but it's something like this. Father, I, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my sin has separated you, me from you. And I know I couldn't save myself. I want to trust Jesus and what he did on the cross. I want him to be my Savior. I want him to be my Lord. And if you've never made that decision before, I want to encourage you to do that. And you know, part of what's kept this church united for 60 years, think about that in light of all of our differences and all the things that we could get all um, upset about blah, blah, blah. What, what, what has provided the incredible sweet unity that we enjoy? It's that we have a common spiritual identity, that, that we're in Christ. So if you went around the room this morning and just asked anybody, hey, 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 what's the most important thing about you? People wouldn't say, well, well you need to know I'm German, or you need to know I have, I have red hair. Or you, know, or you need to know that I, I like the Cubs. Or let me show you my grandkids. Hopefully before you do any of those things, what would you say? I'm, I'm in Christ. 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 Because I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And think about the effects and how those effects have guided us practically the last 60 years. We've been freed from sin's power. Paul reminded the Romans, you've been freed from sin and you became slaves of righteousness, which is why we wrestle with our minds and the power of the Holy Spirit telling ourselves, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You've been bought back from that. But alive to God in Christ Jesus, a price had to be paid. And I realize you might say, oh, but Pastor Bryce, I, I have such a long way to go in this, in this dealing with sin in my heart and life. Hey, I do too. I do too. At my age, I'm depending less on sanctification and looking more to glorification. I mean, I, I, I get it. I, I do get it. But, but you know what? Think about how far you've come. You know that? Something got you over to the church house this morning. Right? You could be a lot of different places right now, doing a whole lot of different things. And where are you? You're in a church house, having sung some great worship music to your Redeemer, and now you're listening to a sermon. <laughs> yeah. What's up with that? Well, it's because you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
That, by the way, is what motivated this church 48 years ago to actually launch our biblical counseling center. It's not because we were convinced about our wisdom, and we're still not. We're not enamored with the world's latest philosophy or theory. Then why did we start a counseling center for the community? It's because we truly believe in the power of Christ's redemptive work. That's why. We're transferred from the world system. So it's interesting how redemption comes up in verses like this. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption or similarly in Galatians 1, 3, and 4, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present age. And many of us, not all of us, would say this morning, this world's not my home. I don't embrace the world's values, the world's philosophies, the world's core ideologies. Why? Because you were redeemed from that. You were rescued from that. And I'll tell you, when you get a group of people together who are not living for the world's philosophies because they've been transferred to the kingdom of God's dear Son, it's amazing what you can get done for God. And it was a beautiful thing to watch everyone serve last week. It was beautiful. What was that about? That that was a bunch of redeemed people. You say, did we pay those volunteers really well? Well, we doubled their salary from last year. That'd be it, two times zero. But no. But, but why would people serve like that? It's because something has happened in their hearts. Redemption releases us from guilt and shame. We saw this earlier. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And we've never gotten over that, which is why we do so much community-based outreach ministry. We want as many as our friends and neighbors to be able to experience that same freedom. No more guilt! No more shame because of the powerful blood of Christ. We're protected from legalistic demands. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And listen, I'm not saying we've never had any legalism around our church. It's hard to avoid that, isn't it? We, we want to do right and it's easy to, to fall in, into legalism, but we try to avoid it. Why do we try to avoid it? Because Jesus set us free from all of that. Think about this. We were delivered from the, the fear of death. Think about that. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might fear free those who had the fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. I'm starting my, my 37th year here. Can you imagine that? Which tells you a lot about the grace of God and the patience of this church family. You do realize, by the way, when you get to heaven, you're going to get a big crown. It's the I had to endure Pastor Virus for a long time crown. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. But, um, you know, one thing they didn't tell me in seminary was if you would stay at the same church for a long, long period of time, you're going to end up burying a lot of your friends. But, but that is true. That, that, that is true. And um, there's nothing quite like doing the memorial service where you're right there with a casket of the dead body of one of our dear brothers or sisters. And um, right before that service, generally speaking, I, I just need a, a moment or two, and it allows me just to go up 
to the casket and look at that person's body one last time. And yet generally just a flood of memories that comes. But I'll tell you what happens right there. There's, there's a, a prayer that, that's prayed right then. God, thank you for redemption. Thank you that this person right here to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Why? Because that person's body and that person's soul was redeemed by the precious blood. And listen, it hurts, death hurts, but we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. Why? Because Jesus' redemptive blood, it freed us. It freed us from the king of, of terrors. Well, we need to land this plane. They told me that the clock wasn't working today. They said, hey, our normal clock does, isn't working today, so we just put a different one up. I said, I didn't know you had the first one. But, but um, anyway, like, what does that have to do with anything? But, but, but embrace the purpose of your redemption. I, I, I was given my, back to the donut guy, I, I, all I had to do was hit verse 7 and verse 14. That's all I had to do. And all I've done so far is hit verse 7. So, so let me just so I don't get fired. Here we go, verse 14. Who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption. And here it is. Of God's own possession. You know, our, our church uh, over our um, 60 years has only had five senior pastors. That's kind of uh, unusual, really. But this was never Pastor Reed's church. And it was never Pastor Lockwood's church. It was never Pastor Vila's church. It was never Pastor Good's church. It's certainly not Pastor Byer's church. Why? Whose church is it for all these 60 years and forever to come? It's Jesus' church. Why? Because he's the one. He bought it with his own blood. And that's what motivates our obedience. That's what empowers our service. He gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Hey, friends, are you thankful for redemption? You thankful for redemption? You thankful for Boaz? Don't you love that love story in the Bible? Please remember that what Boaz was to Ruth, uh, Jesus is to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for the precious blood. And Father, I pray that regardless of what we're facing, I do pray that there would be a foundation of joy because our sin has been paid for. Lord, I, I pray that you would direct us each and every day. I pray that we would, we would want to serve our Redeemer. And I pray that it would be a, a desire of our heart in response to all you've done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.